Let's seek the Lord before we look into his word and ask the spirit to give us guidance and wisdom and understanding. Let's pray together. God the Spirit, we come to you as one who knows all truth, communicates all truth. I pray that my heart and our hearts may be opened to that truth. Thank you that uh, you want us to learn. I pray you will speak to me and through me that I may speak your truth and that your truth might be transforming in our lives. Thank you for being with us. Thank you for your presence and help. And I thank you that we have this great hope that's ours in Christ because you have sealed us for eternity. Just bless our time in your word as we think together on the things of God. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Gord, I got one step of bad news for you. I'm not preaching in the Gospel of John this morning. <laughs> I, actually, I I was praying over the weekend, and uh, or the week, I should say, and uh, asking the Lord where I should go and uh, what I should preach. And I felt that the Lord wanted me to focus on the Lord's table and uh, what we're doing. So if you'll turn with me in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 52, and we'll begin at verse 13. Isaiah 52 and verse 13, and we'll go down through the end of 63, verse 12. Uh, I'm doing something I've never done before, so you have to be patient with me. I got a 12-point, 11-point ser sermon today, so I hope you brought your lunches <laughs> so, so we can keep going here, uh, but... Uh, I, I began studying this passage and uh, it was a blessing to my heart again to see how God has everything laid out long before it happens. And we kind of are the kind of people we want it yesterday, you see. But God says, in my time, in my way, I will do it. And I will tell you what I'm going to do because I am going to do it. I'm going to do it. And that's the wonder of our God. And so as I was thinking, I thought about that passage that pastor reads so often at communion service in uh, 1 Corinthians 11, chapter, or verses 24 and 25. The fact that uh, it says there in those two verses, in each verse, it says, This do in remembrance of me. This do in remembrance of me. And that's what we're going to be doing, in remembrance of him. And so we look at this prophetic passage, which is pointing to him, but now we're living in remembrance of it. And it, it's one of those wonderful, wonderful passages. And the Lord willing, as we study it, that all of us will begin to grow deeper in Jesus Christ and have deeper love for him because of what he accomplished for us on our behalf. So let's begin to look at this passage. Let me just say, uh, I'll be re I, I'm not going to read the passage because I'll be reading it through a translation, okay, and uh, making my comments based on that translation. So uh, if you could just hang there with me and uh, we can go through this. So my first point is Christ's destiny determined. Christ's destiny determined. And it says, uh, my God's servant... Uh, this is a translation, by the way. Uh, uh, the word 
servant, by the way, here is often used as the word slave also in the Old Testament. And uh, it, it's also in the New Testament. You will find that where, where it speaks of uh, Jesus in Philippians 2. He's called, he became a slave. He became a slave. And so it, it's important. Let me remind you that uh, the idea of a slave is someone who is totally under the control of somebody else. And Jesus, in his life, was under the control of the Word of God, the works of God, and the will of God. And therefore, he was a slave to the purposes of God. And so, it's, it says here, my God's servant, who's referring to Jesus Christ, uh, Christ shall teach with insight. Christ is going to be an insightful teacher. He's going to teach with insight. He shall be raised up. It's, it's interesting the phrasing that uh, uh, Isaiah uses here because he says he shall be raised up which means exalted and then he follows it exactly with almost the same words but adds a word. He says, he shall be greatly exalted. He's not just going to be exalted. He's going to be greatly exalted. And uh, it seems to me that the challenge to me was, is Christ greatly exalted in my life? Is he the most important thing? Is he the thing I look to? You see, is he exalted as God above God's King of kings and Lord of lords. So he will be exalted. So his destiny was determined before he ever came on this earth. The second thing I want you to notice that Christ is disfigured. Christ is disfigured in verse uh, 14. Just as many were astonished. And the little translation here is, many were made to be astonished by you, that is God, his appearance according to the established standard was terribly disfigured, more than any man's appearance. Uh, I was reading that and I, I thought of those nice little pictures you see with Jesus hanging on the cross, you know. He's got a crown of thorns and he looks just, except he lacks clothes, but he looks good. And uh, I have often wondered how they could paint a picture like that after he's being punched in the face for about three or four hours, hit over the head with sticks, uh, beaten up by... Uh, rods, how could we say he's uh, looks normal? He wasn't normal. It says he was so disfigured that people couldn't recognize him. And when you stop and think about that, stop and think, he took all that punishment before the cross for you and I, for our sins. So he was totally, totally disfigured. And, uh, and it's interesting that uh, Isaiah puts the phrase, more than any appearance of any man. There was never a man that was disfigured like Jesus Christ. And uh, that's something that is very, very interesting that he bore our sins not on only on the tree, but in the punishment previous to going to the cross. It was all, to use a phrase, all part of the package that he had to go through. So Christ was disfigured. The third thing is what I call Christ's disclosure. And you see that in verse 15. It says, Thus 
he will sprinkle many nations and so on. And the literal translation is interesting. It says, thus he shall splatter his blood. He shall splatter his blood among the Gentiles, kings also close to their mouths uh, against or by him, because who had not recounted, declared to them, shall see. Whom they had not regarded, shall regard and understand. And what he's saying is when he's crucified, all these kings and Gentiles and all these people who never knew, who never heard, who never understood, will hear, will understood, will understand, and they will come to believe in him by faith in his person. And uh, uh, it's, it's one of those great things that we have to uh, recognize that it's when we see Jesus in all his suffering that it's life transforming. When we can understand what it cost him and what he did for us, it will bring us benefit and blessing. Now the fourth thing <coughs> is what I call Christ's detection. And uh, the uh, it's in verse 1 of chapter 5. And uh, it says, and again in translation, who has confidence in our report or message? Have you ever found that when you witness? Who has confidence in what we have to say about Jesus Christ? Nobody can have confidence in him unless God puts it in their hearts. You see? And so he asked the question, who has, who has confidence in our report? To whom is the power and might of Yahweh exposed? By the way, I translate it Yahweh because he uses two different words for God here in this passage. And it's vital and important. And uh, Yahweh is always the majestic personal name of God. And so he says... <coughs> uh, uh, who has co had confidence in our report? To whom is the power or might of Yahweh exposed? He shall stand up before him, God, that is, before God, as a tender shoot. By the way, that word tender shoot in the original uh, has the same idea as a nursing child. So it's kind of a picture of his incarnation as we come. He's come into this world, a tender shoot. <coughs> In time of drought, and uh, if you don't believe there was a drought, just read the Gospels. In the time of Jesus Christ, there was a real spiritual drought. By the way, uh, I don't think we're too far from that right now, are we? We're in a time of real spiritual drought where men have nothing to do with God. They've rejected God. They've replaced everything that God is and God was with man-made things. And man-made things end up what? Destroyed. They end up being nothing. The Psalm 146 says, <clears throat> Put no confidence in princes, nor for help on man depend. He will die to dust returning, and his purposes shall end. And so, man just has nothing but destruction without Jesus Christ at the end. He he, he is left for destruction. And, and uh, it's uh, 
very, very important for us to understand that in this passage, he is saying that he came up, he became somebody that he wasn't. And he lived as somebody that he eternally wasn't. Did you get that? He lived as somebody that he eternally wasn't. He just lived as the perfect, sinless man here on earth. That's why he started as a shoot out of the ground. You see? He started as a shoot because he lived as a man to die for man, for man's sin. Uh, put up with me here for a minute. This is, this is one of the things that bothers me a, a, a little bit. Uh, some of the hymns that says, God, God died for us. God never died for us. God can't die. It's impossible for God to die. The man Jesus Christ died for us. Even Paul refers to him as the man Jesus. And so he had to be like us to die for us. That's the whole argument of the author of the book of Hebrews. He said he didn't become an angel to die for angels. He became a man to die for men. That's, that's what he came to this earth for. And he died as a perfect man so he could bear away our sins. And that's what we remember as we come to the Lord's table uh, this day. And uh, it's, it's interesting. It, it says that uh, there was no beauty or majesty in him. You remember what they said about Jesus? Isn't he the carpenter, Joseph's son? Who's he? You know, what's, what's the big deal here? He's just a carpenter's son? They couldn't see the majesty in him. And uh, it's, it's important for us to realize he had to do that to live as a man and die as a man. The fifth thing I'd like to look at is in verse 3. It says, He is disrespected or disdained by men. A man of suffering. We were turning away our persons from him. He was held with disrespect. We did not regard him. Does that sound like what goes on when you go out and try to witness to people? Who cares about Jesus? Yeah. But you look at how he was disrespected when he lived on earth. Despite all he did, I was reading that sixth chapter of John uh, the other day, and I thought, you know, th this is really something interesting. It is really something interesting. He feeds 5,000, probably 5,000 men, and it's probably about 10,000 people, and he feeds them from nothing. And at the end of the chapter, they say to him, show us a sign. Don't we have a world like that today? God, show us a sign. We'll believe. Did they believe? What's the end of the chapter? It says all his disciples left him and went away. All his disciples left him and went away. They didn't believe. They didn't believe. Now, they would have loved to have him as king. As a matter of fact, it says in that gospel in chapter 6 that they wanted to make him king by force. And what did he do? He took off. Why did they want to make him king by force? Well, what, what was there about him that 
He didn't look like a king. He didn't act like a king. Why would they want to make him a king? Well, if you got an army and you got a leader who can feed the whole army, who can raise the dead, who can heal the wounded, hey, that's the kind of king you want. That's the kind of commander you want. They weren't interested in who he was, but what he could do. Doesn't it remind you a little bit of our so-called evangelical society today? We're interested in what God can do for us. What we can get out of this. My favorite saying is a lot of people see Jesus Christ as a cosmic Santa Claus. Just send him your letters for Christmas and, and you'll get what you need. And, and we're always looking for what we can get, not for what he has done. Because what he has done is what makes it all possible. So he was disrespected. He was not regarded. As a matter of fact, it was even a little deeper than that. He was hated. He was hated. Right from the beginning, what did the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees want to do with Jesus? Put him on the throne? Of course not. Of course not. They said, we got to figure out some way to kill this guy and stop him. And even Pilate said, the only reason they're bringing him here is because they're jealous. They're jealous. And they don't want him to take over their place. So we see, we see that there was hatred against Jesus Christ. And we see it still today. It hasn't changed. The sixth thing we see, and to me this is one of the chief important things, is what I call deliverance through Christ. Deliverance through Christ. It says, truly or surely, he has taken on our hanging on sin. That's an interesting word I found in the original. It's sin that hangs on and hangs on and hangs on and you can't get rid of it. Have you ever, have you ever had a cold you can't get rid of? It's pretty miserable, isn't it? And our sin is like that. It makes life miserable. We become miserable people because of our sin. It's hanging on and it won't let go. Have you ever found that struggle in your life? Yeah. So he's taking on care of our hanging on sin. Then it says, he bore away or could be translated endured, our suffering. And whenever there's suffering, you know there's sorrow. How many are you happy when you get suffer? Oh, I don't see too many hands. You see, we, we don't like suffering uh, because it, 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 brings, it brings sorrow to us. <coughs> uh, we reckon or consider him stricken by God. And here he uses the other name for God, Elohim. He says, he was stricken by Elohim. And the word Elohim means the true God. He was stricken by the true God. The true God struck him. And remember, as, as we go, we'll see this, but everything is under the hand of the Almighty. God is in control of this. Even this prophecy, God was in control of it. And it was something that was uh, uh, in the hand of God. He is the only true God. And uh, it says to the God that oppressed him. The God that oppressed him. Uh, by the way, we, we often... And let me try to explain this. But we often think that 
We oppressed Christ and put Him on the cross. But it wasn't us. It was God. God, because God had to do it to provide salvation for us. It was our sin that He carried, but God had to punish Him and pour out His wrath upon Him for our sins. And we have to understand that. So the cross uh, was in the eternal plan of God. As we again look at the communion table, we remember, we remember that this was the eternal plan of God. And here we have it back in the book of Isaiah being communicated to us. So it says... Uh, uh, he, he was uh, the one that came by the hand of God to deliver us. Uh, that is pierced because of our rebellion. Now God pierced him because of our rebellion, but remember God's purpose was to make a children and family for himself and a bride for Christ, his son. And, uh, but to do that, he had to get rid of our sin problem. He had to get rid of our sin problem. And getting rid of our sin problem made us children of God and part of the bride of Christ. And that's, that's the beautiful thing that God has done for us. And it says, that is oppressed because of our rebellion, oppressed because of our iniquity. That word iniquity, by the way, has the idea of both being evil and guilty. Both being evil and guilty. We, are, we were evil and we are guilty. We were guilty. No are. No are. We were guilty. That's the great thing of what Jesus did on the cross. He took care of the evil and the guilt problem. And he redeemed us as his son. To become his bride, I should say. And he says, the discipline of our peace was by him. And by his wounds, we have been restored to health. Now, first of all, we could have no peace, no peace with God without Jesus Christ. He is the source of all our peace with God because Paul says he made reconciliation for us with God. In other words, in other words, he made it possible for God to be friends with us by taking away the sin that was keeping us and was constantly the cause of the wrath of God being poured out upon us. So he gave us peace. Peace with God, peace with one another, and peace with ourselves. But he had to pay a price to get it. He had to pay a price to get it. And it says... By his wounds we have restored to we have been restored to health. Now there's a lot of interpretations of this. Some people say, well, uh, from from the King James especially, uh, by his stripes we are healed. But what does that mean? I don't have to have physical sickness anymore? What is he talking about? Being restored or healed. And it's important for us to know and to understand that in the context, in the context of Isaiah here, it can be nothing but spiritual health. If you take it out of the context, you can make it anything you want. 
You can make it anything you want. But in the context, he's talking about spiritual things that God is doing for us through Jesus Christ. And, and therefore, uh, uh, the healing here is spiritual healing. I don't know about you, but I need spiritual healing more than I need physical healing. You can heal me all you want, but I'm going to die one day anyway. But because he healed me spiritually, I'm going to live forever. I'm never going to die. I'll be with him forever. Let me ask you a question. Which one do you want? Physical healing or spiritual healing? See, uh, you want something temporal or something eternal? And this is, this is the great thing that God has for us. So, uh, it says, Everyone, like sheep, have wandered and turned to his own individual way. And I... I couldn't help thinking of our society today when I read that. Everybody's wandering. They don't know where they're going. But everybody's going their own way. Not God's way, but their own way. And we have, and I say this with concern and prayer, we have a church today that is going their own way and not God's way. Every individual you listen to this pastor, you listen to that pastor, and you hear something and say, how can you say that? How can you? You don't mean that, do you? But it's important that one of the things that salvation is determined to do is to bring us into God's way because Jesus is the way. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So, if we want to get on the right way, we've got to get, be in Jesus Christ. As he almost said, get in. But he puts us in. So, we don't get in by ourselves. And so, we... Uh, have to understand this. Uh, it's vital and important that whatever Jesus did, and we'll see this again in a minute, because uh, Isaiah reiterates this whole idea. The seventh thing I want to look at is what I call Christ's demeanor. Christ's demeanor. It says in verse Seven, he was ill-treated by his enemies. He was opposed. He opened not, or uh, it's interesting that he opened not his mouth can be also translated, he didn't loosen his mouth. He didn't loosen. Do you, do you ever have a problem with loosening your mouth? Speaking when you're not supposed to speak and saying what you're not supposed to say. He said he didn't loosen his mouth. He didn't loosen his mouth. Um, uh, he, carried along, he was carried along as a lamb to the slaughter as sheep who face the cutting, that is the cutting of their hair, of is, and he is Speechless is silent. He opened not his mouth. I began to look at that passage and two things came to my mind. And I know that probably you're not like this, but I sure like to defend myself. When somebody makes an act, okay, let's, let's, we're going to get in the, Get this thing straightened out. Yeah. I got I to gotta fix this whole thing. And uh, uh, the, the other thing is that 
I get my feelings hurt when people don't say nice things about me. And because I get my feelings hurt, I'm going to respond like I shouldn't. Now, I know you people don't do that, but I do. And, and I know it, it's true. And it says Jesus was so utterly abused. And what did he say? Nothing. I like what Pilate says. He said, what's the matter with you, Jesus? Don't you hear all these people and all the accusations they're making? Why don't you say something? Not a word. Not a word. You see, he didn't have to defend himself because he was living in the purposes of God as a slave and servant of God and doing the will of God. And the more we live for God as servants and slaves of God, the more we will not be troubled by the outside world. You see? And now, I'm going to be careful here because you may misunderstand me, okay? I'm not saying we're not supposed to defend the faith. But what I'm saying is, you can't fight the world and win. The only one who will ultimately win over the world is the Lord Jesus Christ. He will come and judge. And that's what he says. I, I didn't come to judge the first time, but when I come again, I'm coming to judge. I'm coming to judge. And so... We leave all those things in his hand and we speak as led by the Spirit through the Word and there are times when we have to keep quiet. We have to keep quiet. And I don't know about you, but the keep quiet part is pretty hard. Keep quiet heart is pretty hard. The eighth thing we want to look at, and we find this in verses 8 and 9. It says, He was taken away from social rejection because of judgment rendered. I, I, I read over that phrase for quite a while. He was taken away from social rejection It says, because of judgment rendered. What does that mean? What does that mean in light of his life and his death? Well, he was removed from society. A society that as a whole was basically rejecting him. And how was he removed from society? By the false judgment of the scribes and the Pharisees and, and, and the Sadducees. You see? And uh, they, they took him off the map, but it was all for the purpose of God so that he could die for us. But, but they... He was taken away because of their judgment. He went to the cross because of the judgment of evil men. Then he goes on and says, even though he was, uh, oh, excuse me, who had pondered the absence of his posterity. That's a question. Who is, did anybody think about the fact that he didn't have any posterity? No children, no wife, no family. Anybody think of that? It says, even though he was separated or cut off out of 
the earth of the living because, why? It says, because of the rebellion of the peoples of mine. Isn't that interesting phrase? In the original it has God speaking. This all happened because people rebelled against me. Because people rebelled against me. Rebelled against God. And uh, I know one thing. That I was in a mess in my life because of my rebellion against God. Until he did something about it in his son Jesus Christ in my life. You see? So, he says, uh, the rebellion of the people of mine, he was stricken. He gave his place to the grave with transgressors, that is, criminals, among the rich in his violent death because he had accomplished no wrong, no injustice, not deceit. And by the way, that word, that word deceit in the original has the idea of not only not telling the truth, but not communicating the truth when you know the truth. And so it says here <clears throat> that he was crucified with criminals. He was crucified with criminals. And let me just take that one step farther. Criminals crucified him. The, he was not only crucified with them, he was crucified by them. Those who stood opposed in rebellion against God. And that's why he had to die. That's why he had to die for us. And we remember that when he died, he was with criminals, but he was buried in the tomb of a rich man called Joseph of Arimathea. Isn't that interesting? All these hundreds of years before it ever happened, God knew it and God planned it and it came out just the way God wanted it. That's the way God works. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad His purposes and plans come to work? Yeah. But notice it says, and it again lays this down, it says, He accomplished no wrong. By the way, that word wrong could also be translated injustice. He didn't do any injustice. Everything He did was right. Not deceit. Because He was perfect and pure and holy. He died as a perfect, pure, holy man. Remember what John the Baptist said when he first saw Jesus? Anybody remember what he said? He said, Behold the Lamb, Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb. What was the lamb to be? What was the lamb to be? Spotless, without, without blemish. And Jesus came as that perfect lamb to die for us. He came spotless, sinless, perfect to die for us. And so it's, uh, it, it's a wonderful thing that he here portrays the whole scope of the death of Jesus Christ in, this, in these two verses. Everything good about him, everything bad about man, and everything good that Christ did for bad man. Isn't that wonderful? And that's what we remember when Jesus said, this do in remembrance of me. I did this all for you. I did it all for you. So that's Christ's death. And then the ninth thing that we want to look at here is what I call God's determination. And we find this in verse 10. In verse 10. It says, Yahweh had pleasure to crush him. 
making him weak. When you, God, shall commit his soul a guilt offering, he shall see his descendants with his eyes and shall prolong his time. The desire of Yahweh shall come mightily in his hand. This, this to me is one of the great, great statements in this passage. He says, he says, first of all, God was pleased to crush him. God was pleased to crush him. Why was God pleased to crush him? Well, we'll see a little further. But God was pleased to crush him so you and I could be saved. God was pleased to crush him because of, going back to the previous verse, the descendants Christ would receive. And we'll see that comes out in this verse again. And uh, it says, Yahweh had pleasure to crush him, making him weak. Making him weak. And Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death even the death of the cross. God humbled him. He made him weak. And he let him die as a man. That's why he, Jesus Christ, on the cross, was forsaken of God. It says, it says when you, God, shall commit his soul a guilt offering, his person, Jesus Christ, was for our guilt. And God made him a guilt offering for us. And he, God, shall see his descendants with his eyes. That is, God is now seeing the descendants of Jesus Christ when he looks at you and me. And then he he said he didn't have any physical descendants. But look at all the descendants he had. We're told in the book of Revelation that there was a multitude that nobody could number. Well, that's a lot of descendants. That's a lot of descendants, you see. And so we became descendants of Christ. And it was all the work of God and the purpose of God. And God saw it come to pass because of the cross. God saw it come to pass because of the cross. And so, I, 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 think, I think it's important for us to understand and, uh, um, that everything he did was the work of God to bring us to God. But then on the other hand, it was for his glory. It was for God's glory and for Christ's glory. It says, Yahweh has made hostility to fall upon him for the punishment of everyone. And, uh, and then when we get, that's, that's in verse uh, 6. And then in verse 11 it says, He shall prolong his time. The desire of Yahweh shall come mightily into his hand. Christ may have died on the cross, but he's going to reign forever. He's going to rule forever. He's going to rule all things forever. For He is what? King of kings and Lord of lords. He will rule forever. And uh, it says uh, that uh, his eyes, that is God's eyes, shall see the desire that he had in sending Jesus Christ to the cross fulfilled. Um, I know about you, but sometimes when I look at myself, I say, I don't know. I don't know if you've got something really desirable here, but uh, we know that it's desirable because of what Christ did on the cross and what God's eternal purpose was. And 
And that's the great thing. And the tenth thing here is what I call God's delight. God's delight in verse 11. It says, He, that is God, shall visually see because of the labor of his person, that is the person of Jesus Christ, and be satisfied by his discernment or insight, my righteous servant shall make many to be righteous. He shall carry their iniquities. Now, to me, that's one of the most glorious statements. It says, God's going to see. God's going to see it. He's going to personally see what he did to his son and what it accomplished. He's going to see it. He's going to see it. Where does he see it? At BBC. And everywhere else where God's people are met together. See, God sees it. God sees it. And uh, uh, he's satisfied. He's satisfied. God didn't say, oh boy, look at those people at Bowmanville Baptist. Uh, I shouldn't have saved them there. But God's satisfied because Jesus accomplished something that we won't know accomplished till we see him and become like him. Until then, all of us are going to be struggling with the flesh in our lives. But God sees the end and he says, even David someday is going to be perfect. Not the mess he is today, but he's going to become perfect. Isn't that wonderful? You can say that about each one of us. And uh, it. Um, and notice uh, the, in that phrase I read, he two or three times calls him his righteous servant. His righteous servant. And there's a picture there of the imp- righteousness of Jesus Christ to each one of us. How we have two things imputed to us from Christ. His righteousness and his everlasting life, resurrection life. And those are imputed to us as the people of God. What a blessing. What a blessing that is. And uh, uh, it's... um, all in that final phrase it says he shall carry their iniquities because Jesus bore my sin in his own body on the tree. And then finally, number 11, I call it Christ's destiny fulfilled. Christ's destiny fulfilled. It says, for this reason, I, that is God, will share with him, that is Christ, a great abundance. I, I just stop and think about that phrase. I was thinking about this last night. He's going to share a great abundance. That's, that's all the people that have been brought into the kingdom of God. That's a great abundance. That a great... And God says, I'm going to share it with him, my servant. And he says, he, that is Christ, will share the plunder. By the way, that word plunder means something that's taken from somebody else by force and violence. And what the plunder is that we share in is Christ's victory over Satan. Writer of Hebrews tells us, he destroyed him that has the power of death, even the devil. So we have victory over Satan. Satan can't touch the people of God because Christ defeated him. Christ defeated him. He's a defeated foe. 
My problem is not with Satan, it's with me. It's with my flesh. And so it's important. And uh, uh, I think he said he's going to share the abundance and the plunder with Christ among the mighty. Have you ever considered yourself mighty? But that's what we are. How can you not be mighty if you're a child of God? How can you be mighty if you're not sealed for eternity? How can you be mighty if you don't have the hope of transformation? See, all these things bring might to us. He shares them with the mighty. He shares them with the mighty. Because he poured out his person to death. He counted, he was counted among, and in the Hebrew it says, the revolters. The revolters. He was counted among the revolters. How did Jesus revolt? He revolted against the authority and power of Satan and destroyed him. Totally destroyed Satan. Satan was, according to Jesus' own words, the God of this world. Paul calls him the God of this world. But he destroyed him. He destroyed Satan. And therefore, the people of God cannot be held captive by Satan. And I think it's important for us to understand that. It says, he took away the accumulated shortcomings of many that had to be punished. I got a funny feeling I fit in that category. He took away, he took away the shortcomings, all the failures that I have and you have. And by the way, let me just say this. As a believer today, you might feel that you have a lot of shortcomings, but remember, they're still taken care of by the cross. All your sins, past, present, and future, are taken care of in Jesus Christ. And that's, that, to me, is uh, one of the great blessings. And uh, he, uh, he took away all the sins that had to be punished, and then I love the last phrase here. It says, making a request for those living in sin. Making a request for those who are living in sin. It says, he is seated at the right hand of God, ever making intercession for us. I don't know about you, but I don't know about anybody I would rather have praying for me than the Lord Jesus Christ. Because, first of all, he has power in prayer that I don't have. And he knows what to pray when I don't know how to pray. And his prayers are always answered by God. Wow. Isn't that wonderful? And how did it all come about? Because he died for us. He died for us. He gave himself, bore our sins in his own body on the tree that we might live. And so, as we come to the Lord's table, let us, let us remember that we're celebrating him who is the mighty conqueror. We're celebrating him who has made everything possible for us. We're celebrating remembrance of him. Let's pray together. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word and fact that even in its prophetic form, it is so powerful and has 
great things to teach us and to help us grow in our love and appreciation for Christ and all he has done for us. And as we go to your table, I pray that you will fill our hearts with love that we might love you more and more and serve you better and better. Help us as a body of Christ to be faithful witnesses to the world around us, recognizing that we can't change the world, we just witness to it. And it's the Spirit of God that does the changing. Thank you, Father, and continue to be with us. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.